Thanks so much for that excellent introduction, Larry. I'm delighted to be here on Covenant Key FM. A big thanks goes to Larry and Jen Siegel for allowing me to be a part of their network. Before we begin, why don't we thank God for providing this opportunity to study His Word. Our Father in Heaven, the only true God of this infinite universe, the holiest of all holies, King of all kings and Lord of all lords, the sovereign of all the ages. We ask for your blessings upon our studies and our fellowship here. May we apply these truths to our lives in such a way that it not only strengthens us spiritually, but also equips us to teach others and build your kingdom, so that many will be blessed and bring glory and honor to you and your Son, who redeemed us in his blood, It is in His wonderful name we pray. Amen. I want all of our listeners to know that there is a PDF outline, lesson outline, available for this podcast and usually all of our podcasts. Uh, And there's always some extra information and sources listed in the PDF that we don't always have time to cover here in the podcast. And most of our listeners, of course, have found it real helpful to have the PDF lesson outline open in front of them as they listen. Uh, Any sources for more information which are mentioned here on the podcast are also listed in that lesson outline so that you won't have to write them down. So if you'd like to get that uh, outline, simply email me and request it. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Okay, well, the last events we looked at back in August on the podcast over at 8070.net were some of the signs of the end. Uh, For instance, we looked at Jesus the farmer. Uh, He's referred to as Jesus ben Ananus in Josephus' account and refers to him as a husbandman or farmer uh, who came to the festival and on a sudden began to cry out, Woe! Woe to Jerusalem. And we noticed also that uh, not only these prophets appearing in these days, but uh, there were earthquakes and famines and plagues that began to happen with greater frequency and intensity as we get within this last 10 years before AD 70. We will see more of this as we progress through the final seven years uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We also looked at the travel of Josephus to Rome about this time, 62 AD, while Paul was still in prison there and while John was exiled to Patmos. I find it quite interesting that Josephus went to Rome at this very time. He stated that his trip was for the purpose of securing the release of some fellow priest who had been held hostage by Nero, but uh, rarely did Jewish emissaries go to Rome with only one item on their agenda. Usually there was a whole shopping list of things for them to accomplish while they were there. And since Josephus stayed for almost four years, it seems even more likely that uh, he must have had some other things to do while he was there in Rome. Uh, And, of course, when we get to AD 64 and talk about the fire, the great fire that occurred in Rome in 64, July, the summer, um, and that's when Josephus was still there, 
about the middle of his visit, and right after that, the Jewish persecution and the Roman persecution against uh, Christians broke out after the fire in Rome. Uh, we're going to discuss more about Josephus's possible agenda there in Rome uh, at the time we deal with that fire and the Neronic persecution in 64 AD. I think you'll see the connection there and see the possibilities. Well, there's some other events that are happening about this time in 61, 62, 63 AD uh, that we're looking at. This is the time when Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. And it's important for us to keep all these other events in mind as we think about what was happening in the Roman Empire at that time that Paul was still in prison. In AD 61 and 62, the epistle of James and the first three general epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I believe were probably written about this time because the book of Acts doesn't refer to any of that doesn't mention them because Luke was in Rome with Paul and he wasn't aware of what James and John were doing back in Judea at that very time. So that's where I place uh, James and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is right in that 61 to 62 while Paul was beginning his Roman imprisonment. And also in AD 62 I believe is uh, according to Josephus and others the time when the Roman authorities in Judea stopped the minting of coins. Uh, up until 62 AD, they had allowed the Jews to mint uh, some coins with no Roman images on them. They were Torah compliant or temple compliant coins, which they could use to buy and sell sacrifices in the temple. And the Romans stopped allowing them to do that in 62 AD. Now that was one of the events, I believe, which pushed the Jews into considering revolt. And it certainly provoked tension and distrust among the Jewish leadership for the Roman establishment. Uh, also in 62 AD, there was a severe famine in Armenia, which is north of Palestine, as well as in some parts of northern Palestine. Uh, which uh, created a, a lot of uh, economic turmoil there in 62 AD. And it was at this time that Ananias ben Nadibus, uh, with his three sons, was still very powerful. Uh, one of his sons, Eliezer, was kidnapped by the Sicarii and held as hostage for ransom. And Ananias was so powerful at this point that he was able to get uh, the Roman procurator to release 10 of the Sicarii prisoners in exchange for his son. Uh, so it shows just how powerful Ananias really was and how, how powerful he still was at that very time in 62, even after he, has, he was no longer um, a high priest. There was a change in procurators in 62 AD. Festus died suddenly while he was in office, and so Albinus was uh, sent by Rome to take over after he died, and this was the time, of course, when there was a three-month interim between the two procurators, uh, because Festus died so suddenly, uh, they didn't have a, a replacement for him uh, ready to go, so it took three months 
for Albinus to get there and get installed into office. And during that interim between Festus and Albinus is when Ananus II took advantage of the, the situation and arrested James and put him to death at that point without Albinus's permission. And that was uh, certainly not kosher. The Jewish people uh, liked James. Uh, they didn't agree with Christianity, but they liked James because he prayed for the people and for the temple uh, night and day. I mean, he was a, a pious man, and the people liked him, and they did not take it kindly that Ananus executed him in April of 62 A.D., also, this same year of 62, I believe, is when Paul wrote his first two prison epistles, Ephesians and Colossians. And July of that same year, 62, I believe, is when John wrote the Revelation, because I believe he was arrested at the same time James was arrested, because Josephus says that, that Ananus arrested James and some of his companions, and the phraseology there implies that it was some of the other apostles, some of the people who were his colleagues or or uh, fellow apostles. And the only two people we know of that were in Jerusalem at that time, at least as far as apostles are concerned, would have been James and John and Peter. Uh, Peter was not arrested at that time and put to death, uh, but John evidently was. And uh, John was sent into exile rather than uh, put to death. And I believe that's because he was acquainted with the family. In John chapter 18, at the arrest and trial of Jesus, it says that uh, John was allowed into uh, the high priest's house because he was acquainted with the high priestly family. And that's who arrested James and some of his companions here is Ananus II, who is the son of that very Ananus that uh, tried Jesus and killed him. Okay, also in 62, this is when John wrote the book of Revelation in July, right after he was arrested in, in April. They sent him to exile in Patmos, and it wouldn't have taken much more than a month to reach Patmos from Judea, uh, maybe even less than that if the winds were favorable. Uh, the ships could move right on around the coast of Turkey there and get there pretty swiftly in a matter of three weeks or so. So it's it's likely in the summertime that they made uh, good travel conditions, and he was there and able to begin the book of Revelation shortly after uh, he arrived in the summer of 62. Well, as we mentioned, Jesus the farmer began pronouncing his woes upon Jerusalem. Uh, and it says in Josephus that he did this six years before uh, the temple was destroyed. Uh, or or is it, was it four years before the war? And um, six years before uh, the first stones of the uh, Roman engines began to... Uh, tear against the walls of Jerusalem in the siege, 68 A.D. So uh, here he is beginning his six-year uh, pronouncing of woes 
in 62 AD, at the very time Josephus is headed off to Rome, or shortly thereafter. Evidently, uh, Josephus was still there when Jesus the farmer uh, began pronouncing those woes, because Josephus gives us a lot of details about it, and um, he wouldn't have known those details unless he was there in the city at the time. And that's why we date his trip to Rome in the fall of 62 rather than uh, the spring or the summer. Okay. Um, also in the winter, right after that, uh, is when evidently Paul wrote Philippians and Philemon, two more of his prison epistles, just before he was released there in the spring of uh, 63. Also, we mentioned that there were earthquakes and famines and other signs, natural disasters happening. Uh, in February the 5th of 63, there was a major devastating earthquake in Campania, which are in southern Italy, just south of Rome. Uh, and that's where Pompeii is. And we know Pompeii was devastated by a, a volcanic eruption in 79 AD, totally destroyed. But uh, here they had a, a devastating earthquake at Pompeii in 63 A.D. And this was while Paul was still in prison there at Rome. And I'm certain that uh, he would have felt that earthquake uh, while he was there in Rome. In the spring, however, is when Paul was released from prison. And that's when he releases the book of Hebrews. Also in the summer of 63, soon after his release, Paul wrote two of his three pastoral epistles, uh, which is First and Second, or First Timothy and Titus. Second uh, Timothy was not written until about a year later, uh, after he was captured in the uh, Neuronic persecution. And he mentions in Second Timothy that he knows his departure is at hand; he knows his death is at hand. Also in late 63 or very early 64, First Peter was written showing familiarity with uh, Revelation. And in late 64, of course, the Neuronic persecution began, during which both Peter and Paul wrote their last two epistles, Second Timothy and Second Peter, as well as uh, Jude wrote his epistle of Jude. And so that pretty much sums up all the last uh, books of our New Testament that were written during this time from 61 down to uh, 64 A.D. That's an amazing, in that three or four year period of time, uh, we see, was it 16 different epistles, or 16 different books of our New Testament were written, which is uh, almost 60% of our New Testament. That's, that's amazing, just in, in that short four year period of time, all those books were written. So we see a flurry of literary activity going on at that time. And you can tell that the persecution is heating up and the churches are under pressure and uh, they're needing to be reassured and calmed down and settled down and uh, stabilized in that persecution because it was is trying to push them out of the faith, pushing them into apostasy and leaving the church and leaving Christianity for fear of persecution. So uh, that's why all these books were written. 
Uh, the book of Hebrews especially was written to stabilize Jewish Christians who were tempted to fall away and go back into Judaism. And you can say the same thing about the, the letter of James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st uh, and 2nd Peter, and the, the pastoral epistles especially are, are trying to stabilize Paul's uh, working companions as they faced all the persecution and heavy, uh, difficult work of stabilizing those churches. So uh, this is this is a very pivotal moment in the history of the pre-70 church, this period from 61 A.D. down to 64. Paul was in prison at Rome. James was arrested and killed. John was sent into exile on Patmos. And Peter is trying to hang on to the church there in Jerusalem and keep it stabilized during this very, very challenging time. Uh, very pivotal moment. And it was the moment when the birth pangs of the New Age began to intensify dramatically, not only in their frequency, but in their intensity as well. The literary efforts of the apostles proliferated at this time. Sixteen of the 27 New Testament books were written in these last four years before the outbreak of the Jewish revolt in 66 A.D. It seems that from the moment Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, the apostles shifted into high gear in their efforts to stay connected with all the churches that Paul and the other apostles had established. The apostles increased their letter writing to stabilize the churches who were feeling the heat of the increased persecution and the temptation to fall away from the faith and go back into Judaism or paganism. It would not be improper to suggest, I believe, that this may have been the time that Revelation 20 refers to as the release of Satan when he went forth to deceive the nations to go to war. Certainly this was the time when the Sicarii and the Zealots began their big push for resistance and rebellion. And according to Josephus, there were a number of client nations in the Roman Empire at this very time who were also contemplating rebellion, just like the Judeans. So this is where we're picking back up again in our historical studies. Uh, that's where we left off a couple of months ago, and this is, again, while Paul was still under house arrest in Rome, and it's just two years before the Neronic persecution breaks out in the summer of 64 AD, and only four years before the Jewish war with Rome began in 66 AD. We're getting close to the end here. Uh, the birth pangs are happening more frequently with greater intensity. The persecution is heating up. The Romans are tightening their grip on the Jews. And the Jews are putting up more resistance. Famines, earthquakes, and natural disasters are occurring more frequently and more devastating. The number of false prophets, false messiahs, and false teachers began to proliferate at this time also. Signs were appearing all over the Roman Empire saying that troubling times were just ahead. Everything we have studied so far has been to put us in position to understand this last seven years before the end. From here onwards, we will be right in the thick of it. Josephus calls this critical time the revolution of the ages, and what he means by that is the changing from one age to another, the revolving of the ages, or the changing 
of the ages uh, from one to the other. And it's interesting that he would say that because uh, that, that really uh, fits our New Testament uh, pretty carefully, pretty pretty correctly, uh, because that's exactly what the apostles say is happening during this very time, is that the end of one age was about to arrive and the beginning of the age to come was about to take place. And Josephus gives unwitting testimony to that New Testament principle. So we're going to be dealing with this great tribulation upon the church and the outpouring of wrath upon her persecutors basically from this time on. Uh, we're right into the thick of it now. The, the tribulation is beginning to heat up. I don't think we're quite yet at the point where it's referred to as the Great Tribulation, but it's certainly tribulation. Anytime you've got uh, Paul in prison and James killed and John sent into exile and Peter having to hold down the fort in Jerusalem. And this also seems to be about the time when Barnabas was killed by the Jews. And I want to bring this into our study because uh, it's a topic of my master's thesis that I'm working on right now. And I've been amazed at some of the stuff that I've discovered as my uh, research into Barnabas has unfolded. And I want to share some of that with you uh, because it seems to me that he was probably killed somewhere in this time uh, right here around 61 maybe 62 at the very latest, but I'm tempted to think 60 or 61 is when Barnabas was killed by the Jews in Cyprus. And and I think the reason why is because they were already mad at, at the Christians. And Paul, as we know, was already arrested and sent to Rome. And uh, James would be shortly arrested and killed and John sent to exile. And so... I think this is uh, the time when Barnabas would most likely have been killed is about this time, 60, 61, uh, while Paul was in prison in Rome. And I want to look at uh, both Barnabas and John Mark uh, because I think they fit together and work together a lot. And by looking at the references to Mark in our New Testament, we can tell a little bit about what must have been happening to Barnabas, and I want to explain more about that uh, as we get into our study here. We mentioned that Barnabas was probably killed by the Jews on the island of Cyprus. Uh, I believe this is the time when he instructed Mark to join forces with Paul. Uh, that's at least according to tradition. Tradition says that when Barnabas was about to be killed by the Jews, he told John Mark to leave Cyprus and go join forces with Apostle Paul. In this session, we'll look at this whole scenario with Barnabas and Mark, trying to see how they fit into the overall situation of the church at this very critical time. The history of Barnabas and his epistle, I believe, dovetails nicely into our study right here at this point, since his martyrdom on Cyprus appears to have occurred before or about the same time Paul arrived in Rome for his first imprisonment there in AD 61. The epistle of Barnabas had already been written before that, obviously. I mean, he, if he wrote that epistle, then it had to be written before he died, obviously. 
These events in the life of Barnabas and Mark provide some additional pieces of the historical puzzle that I believe we can use uh, very easily to reconstruct not only the dates for some of our New Testament epistles, but also the chronology for the apostles Paul and Peter as well. And you'll see why I say that when we look at some of the references to John Mark, who was supposedly working with Barnabas until he died. And we see uh, John Mark drop out of the book of Acts at the same time Barnabas does, and then John Mark reappears later in, in Apostle Paul's epistles without Barnabas. And that prompts us to uh, look at those traditions about Barnabas a lot more closely because they seem to fit exactly what we see happening in our New Testament. Now, one of the uh, scholars that I have read and done research in his book uh, for my master's thesis on the epistle of Barnabas, uh, his name is uh, Bernd Coleman, a German guy, it's, I think that burnt is a, an abbreviation for Bernard. Coleman. Uh, his Coleman has two N's on the end of it. Burnt Coleman. He summarized, I believe, some of the best and most well-attested traditions about Barnabas. And I want to read his statement here in his book. Uh, excellent little book. The name of it is Joseph Barnabas, His Life and Legacy. And it's published by uh, Liturgical Press in Minnesota. After his split from Paul, Barnabas, who by this time clearly must have been more than 50 years old, resumed his missionary activities after the incident at Antioch, uh, where he and Paul split over a, a disagreement about John Mark. Then he took off, he set off together with John Mark on a new mission to Cyprus. It tells us in Acts chapter 15 verse 39. At which point he disappears from the Acts of the Apostles and reliable information about him comes to an end. The gaps are filled in with legends from such sources as the pseudepigraphic Acts of Barnabas by John Mark and the Laudatio of Alexander Monicus, whose respective accounts of the second Cyprus mission and the death of Barnabas concur in their basic outline. Accompanied by John Mark, Barnabas carried out mission work over the whole island of Cyprus and suffered martyrdom in Salamis at the hands of local Jews stirred up by Elamus or Bar-Jesus, or uh, according to another account of Alexander Monicus, uh, it was Jews who had traveled there from Syria, and it could be both. I mean, it's not an either-or situation, it's a both-and. Well, uh, according to the traditions, the body of Barnabas was, die, or was buried there nearby Salamis, along with a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, which he had received from Matthew himself, supposedly. Matthew had given him his own handwritten copy of the gospel to take with him on his missionary journeys to Cyprus. And according to John Mark, in his account, uh, John Mark buried Barnabas with that gospel of Matthew. 
The legendary accounts may correspond to historical fact insofar as they claim that Barnabas died during the second Cyprus mission. At least a rough time frame can be determined for the date of his death. At the time that 1 Corinthians was written, Barnabas was still alive, or at least Paul had not received any word of his death, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6, where Paul speaks of Barnabas as still doing missionary work, like Apostle Paul was. And so, uh, if he was dead by that time, which is A.D. 57, uh, Paul was not aware of it, and did not become aware of it until uh, later. We don't know how much later. According to Alexander Monicus, John Mark brought news of Barnabas' death to Paul in Ephesus when he was there on his third missionary journey, which would have been about 57 A.D. However, I disagree with that because it doesn't take into account a statement in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, which seems to be uh, eulogizing Barnabas after he died. So we'll look at that a little bit here. But anyway, uh, Bart Coleman here is, is saying that he thinks Barnabas died around 57 A.D., and John Mark then buried Barnabas on the island of Cyprus and then left to find Paul and join up forces with him, just like Barnabas had instructed him to. Well, Coleman says, When considered alongside 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6, this suggests that Barnabas died around 57 A.D. Now, I think there's a lot of other facts in our Bible which would help us nail it down better than that. Uh, and I don't see anywhere in Coleman's book where he deals with this text in Acts chapter 11, verse 24. And I want to talk about that a little bit as we uh, look further into this. In addition to these external traditions, there are a few mentions of Mark and Barnabas in the uh, epistles of Paul, of course, and in the book of Acts. It is these biblical statements about Mark, which I believe provide the best evidence of when Barnabas might have died. There seems to be two possible dates for the death of Barnabas that have been suggested by various Barnabas scholars, A.D. 57 or A.D. 61. We will analyze both of them in view of the biblical data and explain why we favor the latter date of A.D. 60 or 61 for his death. The book of Acts does not mention either Barnabas or Mark after chapter 15. Both of them disappear together after Barnabas took Mark to Cyprus in Acts chapter 15 verse 39. When Mark does reappear in the epistles of Paul and, and Peter, it is without any mention of Barnabas, implying that Barnabas was already dead. That supports the tradition which says that just before Barnabas died, he instructed Mark to go to Paul and join with him in his missionary efforts. So let's look at what the New Testament has to say about both Barnabas and Mark. Barnabas is mentioned 24 times in the book of Acts, plus the following mentions in two of Paul's epistles, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, as well as Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, verse 9, and verse 13. 
I've arranged these mentions of Barnabas in the order in which they were written with the date in brackets. Uh, and of course, Galatians was the first epistle of Paul to be written, I believe. And that was written in AD 51 or 52. And then of course, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 6 would have been written in 57 AD. And then Acts chapter 11 verse 24 was written uh, anywhere from 58 A.D. to 62. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, Back earlier in our studies, I suggested that the book of Acts, Luke and Acts, both, uh, the gospel as well as the book of Acts, uh, were probably written during that two years while Paul and Luke were in Caesarea in Palestine. After After Paul was arrested in 58 A.D., he was sent off to Caesarea nearby where he remained in prison there for two years before he was sent to Rome. And that was a great time for Luke because he could have gone real easily back and forth between Caesarea and Jerusalem and done his research and you know, wrote the book of Luke as well as the book of Acts, or at least part of it. Now, the last eight chapters of Acts could not have been written until they got to Rome, obviously because it talks about uh, his arrest and uh, his imprisonment there in uh, Caesarea for two years. And then it talks about his arrival, the, the shipwreck and, and the arrival in Rome. And those last eight chapters probably were not written until he got to Rome. And that brings up a really good point. Uh, what about the first 20 chapters? Were they also written in Rome, or were they written in Palestine? And I'm beginning to rethink that a little bit. Uh, I suspect the Gospel of Luke was written in Palestine uh, that two years, but the book of Acts uh, appears to be written basically at the same time, not in two different sections separated by the uh, voyage to Rome and the shipwreck uh, doesn't seem to have been interrupted. It seems to have been written pretty much solid all the way through. So that's why I tend now, I think, to date the book of Acts in 61 AD, right after they arrived in Rome. Uh, They knew they had to write that pretty quick, though, because they would need that information in the court at Rome because the book of Acts mentions many things that a Roman judge and jury and court would need to know about Paul to help acquit him and to help let him off the hook. And so uh, it would had to have been written early on, right after they got there to Rome. And I, I believe that's probably where I would put it, is AD 61, right after they arrived in Rome. Now, notice what it says here in Acts chapter 11, Verse 24, For Barnabas was, past tense, a good man, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And it's talking about Barnabas going up to Antioch in 49 A.D., or a little bit before that, preaching to the saints there and helping establish that Gentile church. Uh, But notice it refers to Barnabas 
in the past tense. For Barnabas was a good man. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, that's a eulogistic statement. It's the kind of statement you would read when someone was trying to honor a person who had already died and sum up their work. Uh, It's almost a, a eulogy for Barnabas. For he was a good man. Notice it's written past tense. It doesn't say he is a good man. He was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So I believe that statement speaks volumes about Apostle uh, Barnabas here. I believe that Barnabas was dead by the time the book of Acts was written in 61 AD at the latest. Barnabas was dead. Now, that's interesting that we would be able to pin that down like that so clearly. Uh, and what I found interesting is this guy, Joseph, or I'm sorry, uh, Bernd Coleman, in his book, Joseph Barnabas, does not deal with this Acts 11.24 because it doesn't fit his traditions and doesn't fit his theory. But I think it's dishonest not to deal with it because it's very clearly a eulogistic statement in past tense summarizing the life and works of, of Barnabas. And it seems to me that Barnabas was dead by the time Luke wrote the book of Acts in 61 or 62. Now, I want to look at a few of the mentions of Mark now and help kind of uh, nail this down even further. Because uh, if you think that evidence from Acts 11.24 is good, uh, there's some even better stuff coming up here in Colossians chapter 4 and Philemon about Mark, uh, which I think will help nail this down. Mark, after uh, at least six different mentions in the book of Acts, Mark reappears after Acts in three of Apostle Paul's later epistles, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. And those are all written 62 and later. Now, what's so significant about these three mentions of Mark after 62 AD? Now, you can see the obvious impact. If, if in fact, Mark was told by Barnabas just before his death to go and join up with Paul after after Barnabas died. And then we see in Paul's three epistles that, in fact, Mark had joined up with Paul and was back in Paul's good graces in 62 and afterwards. That tells us that Barnabas would have died sometime before 62. But he died also before the book of Acts was written because Acts 11.24 says he was a good man, past tense, eulogizing him. So I think this is further confirmation from Paul's epistles that Barnabas must have died before 62 AD because Paul is here in Rome writing from Roman imprisonment mentioning Mark in Colossians 4 verse 10 showing that Mark was now joined up with Paul and reconciled with him back in good graces with him and I think that's very significant also the first epistle of Peter chapter 5 verse 13 the famous Babylon text mentions Mark there as being 
in Jerusalem with uh, Peter at that time. Now that's interesting. Here we have Mark seemingly being a courier between Paul and Peter. And we notice in Second Peter that Peter mentions that he had a complete collection of all of Paul's letters. Now, how in the world did he get those? Especially the ones that were written in while Paul was in prison in Rome. Very easy to figure that out when you see that both Paul and Peter mention Mark in their epistles. That implies that Mark was providing courier service between Paul and Peter during that time that Paul was in Rome in prison. However, there are no eulogistic words about Mark in the book of Acts, nor in any other New Testament book. It seems that Mark was still alive until the Neronic persecution, and maybe even until the parousia itself, serving as a courier between Paul and Peter and the scattered churches. Notice in the following references, uh, and we're going to look at these uh, four references from Colossians, Philemon, Second uh, Timothy, and First Peter 5.13. Notice in these references that from 62 A.D. and onwards, Mark is now connected with Paul and Peter, and there's no mention of Barnabas at all. He totally drops out of the picture. The tradition which says that Barnabas died and gave instructions for Mark to join up with Paul seems to harmonize very well with the biblical narrative at this point. Now let's look at Colossians chapter 4 verse 10. And I'll read the text here and then we're going to make some comments on it. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now that's only one long sentence, and yet I think it speaks volumes in what it implies. And I want to talk a little bit about this. If you have your Bible, you might want to open it to Colossians chapter 4 and read verse 10 there. Very, very significant statement here in terms of uh, Barnabas and Mark and their place in the history right at this point. Note that Mark was with Paul while he was in prison in Rome at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae. Mark did not travel to Rome on the ship with Paul and Luke, but sometime after Paul reached Rome and began his two years of house arrest, Mark came to him there. And Paul wrote the epistle to the Colossians somewhere in about 62 A.D. There is a lot implied here in this statement to the church at Colossae. Notice it says, Barnabas, cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. What in the world were these instructions that Paul gave to the church at Colossae about Mark? Boy, I mean, inquiring minds want to know. Uh, And Paul says, if he comes to you, welcome him. Well, why wouldn't they welcome him? Why would they not welcome him? You know, I mean, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered here about these statements that Paul gives to the church at Colossae. There's a lot implied here. Notice that they had already received instructions from Paul about Mark through a previous letter or courier. 
unwritten statements and instructions, probably through a courier like Tychicus or Timothy. This means that Paul had known about the death of Barnabas and his charge to Mark to join up with Paul before he wrote to the Ephesians and Colossians in AD 62 because he had already previously given them instructions about John. Very interesting here. In fact, Paul had already sent instructions to Colossae and probably to all the other churches in Paul's network about welcoming Mark into their fellowship and helping him in his service work to Paul. This implies that Barnabas could not have died any later than the end of uh, 60 or 61, but more probably somewhere in early 61, shortly after Paul arrived in Rome. The fact that Paul had given the Colossians instructions about Mark previously implies all sorts of things about the death of Barnabas and the travel of Mark to find Paul and join up with him. It also gives us a glimpse into the way the apostles instructed the churches on who was approved by them to do mission work and who was worthy to be supported by them in their mission work. Paul told the Colossians to welcome Mark. That implies that they were to support him and take care of his needs while he was traveling on Paul's behalf, doing courier service. Now, why did Paul need to tell them this? Wouldn't they have automatically welcomed Mark? Maybe not, depending on their opinion of Barnabas and his teaching with which Mark had been associated. But Barnabas was dead now, and Mark was reconciled to Paul, and Paul reminds them of this. Furthermore, if Barnabas had died in 57, the Colossians would have long ago known about it, would not have needed any recent instructions from Paul about it, and would have already been welcoming Mark over the last four years since Barnabas' death. So there's a lot implied here in this statement in Colossians 4.10. This is how historians reconstruct their history, is using the implied things that we see in statements like Colossians 4 verse 10. Paul implies here that Barnabas had recently died, within the last year probably, year or less, and that Mark's reunion with Paul was a fairly new thing that still needed clarification and instructions about it. And so that's a very interesting text in Colossians 4.10. I think it helps us nail down the, the death of Barnabas as somewhere around late 60 or 61 so that uh, Paul could mention Mark as being associated with him now in 62 AD. Also, Philemon, uh, verse 24, and of course, you know, Philemon is one of those short books in the New Testament, only has one chapter, so we don't mention a chapter, we just mention the verse. Philemon 24, and here's what Paul says to to Philemon, who was one of the members of the church in Colossae, and he says, As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers... Uh, It's a real short verse, just mentioning some of Paul's fellow workers. Note that Mark was still with Paul in Rome when Paul was about to be released. And he's telling Philemon to prepare some quarters for him where he can come and visit and stay with Philemon when he's there in Colossae. 
and he's sending his greetings to Philemon, and he mentions that Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, his fellow workers, also send their greetings to Philemon. Obviously, Mark was still in Rome at that time with Paul, but Paul was about to be released, and he planned to come to Colossae. This extended presence of Mark with Paul in Rome would allow for Paul to have written the book of Hebrews in response to the epistle of Barnabas, which Mark had brought with him when he came from Barnabas. And that's this is something that uh, none of us have ever thought of. Uh, I didn't really think about it until I began to do this study for my master's thesis on the epistle of Barnabas. And as I begin to work through all these traditions about the death of Barnabas and Mark leaving and going to be reconciled with Paul at that point, uh, then it began to dawn on me, well, what if the epistle of Barnabas was in fact written in 58 AD, 60 AD at the latest, when Barnabas died, Mark took that with him to Paul and gave it to Paul. What do you think Apostle Paul would do with the epistle of Barnabas? And why do you think the book of Hebrews corrects all the bad theology that we find in the epistle of Barnabas? I think it's because Barnabas was written first, not second. And that's where all the scholars, I believe, have have utterly failed in their analysis of the epistle of Barnabas. They all dated after 70 A.D., But I think it's dated before 70 and before Paul wrote the epistle of Hebrews. And we're going to look more at that uh, uh, probably in future days. Uh, I don't think we're going to have enough time to get into much of it. But I wanted to suggest that for you. And let me just explain where I'm going with this. Uh, In my master's thesis, it's on the topic redating the epistle of Barnabas. And what I'm going to show from internal analysis is that chapter 16 talks about a destruction of the temple and Jerusalem that occurred in the past. All the scholars assume that that past destruction mentioned in chapter 16 of the Epistle of Barnabas is 70 A.D. But what they don't notice, that in the context, the previous three or four chapters... It's talking about conditions back in Isaiah's day. In fact, he quotes several texts right out of Isaiah, uh, talking about how wicked the Jews were in Isaiah's day and how uh, if they didn't repent, they were going to be destroyed and their temple burned and uh, sent into captivity. And then the next thing we know in chapter 16, he talks about that very thing happening. He says, because they didn't repent, their temple was destroyed. Now, you would think scholars would have picked up on that and see that that's talking about the 586 B.C. destruction, not 70 A.D. But there's not a single scholar that I've found, and I've got over 220 references in my bibliography already on this master's thesis, and I've not found a single one of them that has noticed the possibility that the destruction of Jerusalem that's mentioned in chapter 16 is referring to 586 B.C. 
they all think it's 70 A.D. And therefore, the book must have been written after 70 A.D. since it mentions the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But what if it's talking about the 586 B.C. destruction as being passed? Then it could very easily have been written before 70 A.D. because it's not talking about 70 A.D. being passed. It's talking about the 586 B.C. destruction being passed. And that's, I think, the, the real burden, uh, the real heart of my uh, master's thesis is going to be uh, analyzing chapter 16 and showing from the context that, in fact, that destruction that's mentioned there in the past is 586 B.C. And let me tell you, this is going to be a bombshell in patristic studies. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of resistance to that because all of these patristic scholars are futurist, and they're not going to want to date the book of Barnabas before 70 A.D., and especially not written by Barnabas, because that would just unravel all of their futurist theories, which they use as evidence against the preterist view. Uh, a good example of that is uh, Dr. Charles Hill, in his chapter uh, in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem, in Matheson's book, uh, he uses Barnabas, among all the other uh, patristic writings, to show that uh, the preterist view just cannot be correct, because here you've got Barnabas and all these other writers writing after 70 A.D., saying that the, the second coming is still future. Well, if Barnabas was written before 70 A.D., then the coming was still future. And so that would take Barnabas out of their arsenal of weapons that they use against us preterists. And we're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. But I wanted to give you a, a little quick introduction to that idea. I think that will help you uh, see where I'm headed in these studies here with Barnabas and Mark. That'll wrap it up for this time. Next time we'll pick up there and look at some of these other statements in Paul's writings and Peter's writings about Mark and Barnabas. Thank you very much.